Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. There we go. Uh, dude, I don't know about this. It'll be fine. Just saying. Uh, you know what you're doing? Yes, it's gonna be fine. Just saying. Hun? Faucet broke. I got this. What? See, I told you it'd be fine. Just saying. Oh, babe, come on. Sorry. Hey, Dad, can I have some candy? Yeah, I don't care. Yeah. But it's nine o'clock. It's bedtime. It'll be fine. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do this. Do you need some lighter fluid or anything? No, man, I got this. Good morning. Welcome to church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Thank you. Uh, for coming in this morning. I hope you had an awesome 4th of July week. Um, so if you're a guest of ours this morning, I just want to say thanks for being with us today. Thanks for being here. We're, we just really appreciate you coming and spending some of your Sunday morning with us. Uh, we also want to welcome everybody that's joining in online live. Can we just say hey to them and just thank them for being with us? It's, that's just been an awesome thing to see people from all over uh, really the world uh, tune in and watch our sermons on Sunday morning. Um, so this morning, I want to tell you right off the bat, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to there. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in a seat around you somewhere. If you don't own a Bible, grab that Bible, put your name in it. That's our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible. So just go ahead and take that home with you. We also have our ACF Church app that you can download. That app will have all the notes in it, and it has uh, the verses for today. And finally, the verses will be behind me on the screen as well. Um, but does anybody have that friend, that just saying friend, right? Does anybody have that friend that they are brutally honest all the time in all situations? Who has a friend that's like that? Like, they're just going to tell it how it is. Okay, but maybe a better question. Who is that friend? Who is that friend? Like, yes, I'm the brutally honest one. I will tell you how it is. Hey, how, how does this outfit make me look? Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, so-so. Not your best, right? You show up, got a brand new truck, you're all excited. Hey, check out my brand new truck I just bought. Awesome. I assume then you got a job now as well, right? <laughs> just saying. Just saying, right? They're just going to tell it how it is. And we are in a series now called Just Saying. And what we're doing is we're walking through the book of 1 John. 
And we're in chapter 2, and this is John. He is telling it how it is. Um, John is getting older in life. Um, It's believed he's probably in about his 70s when he writes this letter. And what has been going on and what has been happening is um, there was the explosion of the church, right? We have Pentecost. We have all these people coming and believing in in Jesus and in the resurrection. And and John's been a part of that, obviously. and He walked with Jesus. But now some time has gone on. And now we are years and years and years and years and years removed from that. And, and what, what is happening now is people are continuing to come to Jesus, only they didn't experience this um, time where people were selling everything they owned and helping everybody with needs and just kind of loving each other. And, and they've never experienced that before. And what was actually happening is that there was a false teaching that was beginning to be taught in the church. And the, the teaching was called Gnosticism. And what it was was they were teaching like, look, our flesh, our bodies, what we do on this earth absolutely does not matter. Only the spirit matters. And, and, and because of that too, like what Jesus did on the cross in the flesh doesn't matter. Um, that it's only the spirit that matters. And because of that, people were starting to go, okay, well, that means I don't have to abide by God's law because it's just flesh, right? It's just my body. My body doesn't count. Um, I don't have to love my brother. I don't have to love the people around me because it doesn't count. And John, um, he sees this and he just writes this letter and he doesn't hold anything back. He's brutally honest. He loves the people he's writing to, but he also loves them enough to be honest with them. And so he writes this letter and I love, we're starting in chapter two, verse one, and I love it because John jumps in and immediately tells us why he's writing this letter. He's like, guys, the purpose, you want to know why I wrote you a letter? Here it is. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's writing this. He says, look, the reason I'm writing this letter is so that you will stop sinning, that you would not sin. And as I was just kind of started um, meditating on on the passages I was going to teach on, I was like, man, just right out the gates. Stop sinning. And I was thinking about that. I was like, man, do I take sin seriously like John is here? Do I get up in the morning and think, man, my goal today, my, my heart today, God, fill me with your spirit so that I would not sin against you. Is that even ever on my radar? And I was thinking about it, I was like, man, definitely not enough. That does not kind of come into my radar, into my thinking, into my mind enough times to think, man, today, God, let me not sin against you. And John starts out right away talking about sin and that the goal is that you do not sin. And my question right off the bat was, do we take sin seriously? Do we take it seriously? And, and I love it because John, he understands human nature, obviously, and, and he's like, and, and in the same breath, he does, there's no comma there, there's no period, he says, look, I'm writing so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what we have is, Chapter 2, verse 1, John starts laying this deep theological doctrine for the church. He's really reminding the church from the beginning what they've always known. But he starts laying this deep theological doctrine that we need to just visit for a moment. Because sin is a very big deal and God takes it very seriously. And I love this because John says, look, if you do sin, he says, we have an advocate who goes to the Father, who is the propitiation for our sin. So what is this weird word propitiation? 
Today we would kind of call it a church word. Oh, this is, that's a churchy word that pastors talk about, propitiation. But in reality for them, this was not a churchy word at all. In fact, in the culture where they were, it was a Greek and Roman culture. And if you remember anything from junior high, the Greeks and the Romans, they had their gods that they worshipped and that they served. And, and what, what the Roman mindset was, was the gods would get angry and you would have to offer a gift or a sacrifice to appease their anger. And that gift or that sacrifice, offering it up, was called propitiation. You were offering a gift to appease their anger. And what John is saying is, he says, look, sin is serious, and God has a righteous, holy anger against sin. That God is actually angry at sin, and that this is a holy anger. And we need to understand this and take this seriously. And you're going, well, what are you saying? Is God just this angry God up in heaven who's just angry at everything we do? No, not at all. But what I am saying is, just like if you've ever had a loved one who's walked and battled cancer, my guess is that you've been very angry at cancer. And just maybe if you've ever had a loved one who's walked through and struggled with addictions, alcoholism, or drug abuse, and you've watched them destroy their lives, you've been angry at that addiction, that thing that they've destroyed their lives with. And, and far more greater than cancer and far more greater than our addictions is sin that destroys our soul. And God is angry at it. And he has a righteous, holy anger towards it because it is destroying the very people that he loves the, with all of his heart. He, it's destroying our lives. Jesus says that, that there's an enemy and he, he, his goal is to steal from you and kill you and, and beyond kill you, destroy you. And that's what sin does. And that's why we should be thankful and glad that God is angry towards sin. And he doesn't just sweep it under the rug, right? Like so often we want God to sweep our sins under the rug, but not the sins of everybody else, right? Like, God, just forget about what I did, but did you see what my neighbor did? Right? And we are people, we want justice. We cry out for justice. We call out for justice. And that, I, that, that is a good thing. And just like we want justice in this world, God wants justice for sin. And so this justice is called propitiation, is, is the way John describes it. See, we have a deep need for propitiation in our lives because of God's anger, and it is a righteous anger. But what's really interesting is John kind of lays out is the very nature of propitiation is Christ himself. So the very gift offered up is Jesus. John says, look, we have an advocate who is the propitiation for our sins. See, Jesus is the gift. Jesus is the sacrifice that was made for our behalf, for our sins. Jesus is the sacrifice that has been made, that has already been done. And what's really amazing is that this gift, this sacrifice that was offered was so strong, was so potent, was so effective that 2,000 years later it continues to be the propitiation for our sin. It continues to be the sacrifice offered that satisfies the righteous anger of God. And if the world continues to go on for another 2,000 years, it will continue to be the gift that satisfies the righteous anger of God. It's an amazing thing if you really think about it. We don't have to keep going back and offering gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts because Jesus was the ultimate gift and the ultimate sacrifice. So we have a deep need for propitiation. The very nature of propitiation is Christ himself and the source of the propitiation is God's love. 
In other words, John 3, 16, right? That God loved the world that he sent his son to die on our behalf, to be the ultimate sacrifice, to be the ultimate gift for our sin. So when you really break this thing down, um, at no point are you in the equation at all, right? At no point is God going, you got to offer up the right gift, the perfect gift, live the perfect life for your sin. No, we're not even in the equation, right? It's all God's work on our behalf. Do you guys, do you see what this is? It's an appeasement for the holy wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God, right? It's an appeasement of the holy wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. It's all been done for us. And this is what John is laying out. He's saying, look, guys, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. But if you do, remember, remember what Jesus has done. It's all been done on your behalf. It's not about you earning it. It's not about you working for it, that it's all already been worked out for you, that there has been a gift or a propitiation that's already been offered that satisfies this wrath of God. So you are covered by this. And from here on out, for the next part of this scripture, what John says next is is basically, do you know this gift? This gift of Jesus. Do you know Christ? And John, in this this next section, he kind of gives us a test. It's a three-part test that we can hold our lives up to to see if we know Christ. Because I think there's a lot of us in here that Man, we walk around and we are not certain of our faith. John says that we can be certain of our faith. And maybe you're like me. I remember like as a child growing up and you're in Sunday school and the teacher's like, raise your hand if you want to know Jesus. And you're like, yes, I want to know Jesus. And the next week, we'll raise your hand if you want to know Jesus. I'm like, I think I better do it again, right? Raise my hand and this continues on in life and all you're convicted. I'm like, I thought I knew you before, but maybe I really didn't. And yes, I want to know you. And, 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 but John's saying, look, we don't have to do that, that we can be certain of our faith. And, and to help us to be in our certainty, here's, here's a simple test. And just laid out, the test is a moral test, it's an attitude test, and it's a social test. So we're going we're gonna to dive into those right now. So John 1, chapter 2, verse 3. Obey God this is the moral part of the test. Do you obey God? And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Do you know Christ? Well, it says right here, if we keep his commandments, then you know Christ. So how does one go about constantly showing the love of God to God? Well, let me ask you this. How many people are married in this room? Can I see a show of hands if you are married? Awesome. Very cool. I'm very excited. I will be celebrating 15 years of marriage uh, at the end of next month. And so I, I, I feel like I'm just now starting to understand how to be married, just a little bit. Um, not quite there yet, but figuring it out. And so let me ask you this. How do you prove your love to your spouse every moment of every day? Some of you guys are like, I'm supposed to prove my love every moment of every day? Oh, man. That's a lot. How do you prove your love to your spouse every moment of every day? Now, if you're like me, in your 30s, born in the 80s, shaped by the 90s, the last great generation, we had a way, (laughs) 
No, it wasn't. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> we had a way to prove our love. We were taught this in the 90s, and that is through song, right? Like, there was a lot of love songs that came out in the 90s, but arguably, I would say the greatest one has got to be Aerosmith, right? You know where I'm going with this, right? Aerosmith, I could stay awake just to hear you breathing. I love you, baby. She's right there. <laughs> Watch you smile while you are sleeping. Come on, sing it with me, right? Remember the chorus? The chorus? I don't want to close my eyes. I don't yes. All right, first service was a little better. First service was a little better. But still, chills, you guys. I mean, we just sang Aerosmith in church. Amen, we're out. Right, this is how we show our love to the people, you know, every moment of every day. How do you show your love to your spouse? Some of you guys are like, man, well, I buy my wife flowers every month, and so she sees them, and she rem she's reminded of my love, and then they die, so I buy her new ones. Right, some of you guys are like, oh, we, we send notes to each other, we text each other constantly. Some people might be, well, you know, I work hard for my family, I provide for them, that's how I show my love to them all the time. I, ho I hope you're not like this guy, the one that says, you know, when his wife comes to him and says, do you love me? And he says, well, I told you I loved you on the day we got married. If anything changes, I'll let you know, right? <laughs> don't, don't be that guy. Don't, don't be that guy. How do we do this? Teenagers college age, adults in the room. If you're single and you ever think about you want to get married, listen up. If you are married, listen up. How do we do this? The proof of love is in our loyalty. The proof of love is in loyalty. How do you show your spouse that you love them, you stay loyal to them? And it is the same with us and God. How do we show God every moment of every day that we love him is that we remain loyal to him. You see, this was the issue with Israel throughout the entire New Testament, is that they would not stay loyal to God. And yet this is God showing us how much he loves us in the entire Old Testament, is that he remained loyal to them. The proof of love is in loyalty. John is very clear in this text, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments, how do we stay loyal to God? If we keep his commandments. And this does not mean that we perfectly keep his commandments. He doesn't say that because he just got done saying, look, I don't want you to sin, I'm right, so you don't sin, but look, we get it, we will sin, and so remember this. But then he says, look, if you know Christ, then you will keep his commandments. I love what John Calvin says on this. John Calvin says this, he does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keep his commandments, and no such instance can be found in the world, but those who strive according to the capacity of their human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. Do you strive to keep God's commandments? Does that even come into your mind at all during the days, during the weeks? Do you wake up and think, man, God, be with me today so that I would not sin against you? This is the first test that we can hold our life up to, to see, do we know God? Do we know Christ? And, and don't get confused. You see, there is a difference between knowing Christ and, and knowing Christ, right? Right? 
There's a difference between knowing God and knowing God. A lot of people say that they know God. And sometimes we can even deceive ourselves and be like, yeah, I know God. I know who he is. I know what he's about. James writes about this and he said, in James chapter 2. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. In other words, he's like, oh good, you're saying that you believe in God? Cool. So do the demons and they're smart enough to shudder. They're smart enough to know that he takes sin seriously. And, and, and to me, probably the most sobering words spoken in scripture are from Jesus. And it's in, in Matthew 7. He's talking about how we're going to stand before God one day. And there's going to be a group of people that go, God, we know you. We cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. Like, we're in. We knew you. And God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, what these people, what they're going to bring to God is an experience that they had. They're going to bring to God an experience. God, I had an experience with you at church. I raised my hands, and I felt some tinglies. I know you. I know you. Even though you experience God, you, do you know him? These people, they'll stand before God and they'll say, we had these experiences, we cast out demons. I mean, that's big time, right? We did miracles, but they did not know God. See, if our experiences have not marked itself on our lives in a way of deeper desire and striving for obedience, it was just that, an experience. If it doesn't mark itself on your life with a deeper desire and a striving for obedience, then all you had was an experience and you still don't know God. Titus 1.16 says this, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They do not obey him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And John is writing to this church and he's saying, look, there's people going around and they're preaching all this stuff, teaching all this stuff, but they're not obeying Jesus. They're not obeying God. They're not obeying his commandments. They don't know him. See, true love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experiences, but in moral obedience. True love for God is expressed in moral obedience to him. Build your walk with God on obedience, not just with feelings. And I'm not saying that feelings aren't important because we just did a series at the beginning of this year talking about how important our feelings are. But if that's all our walk with God is based on, then, then it's hollow. Are you sure? The next test is an attitude test. Imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. 1 John 2, 5 and 6. By this we may know that we are in him. Again, he's very plain. By this, you can know that you are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Now, a couple weeks ago, about two weeks ago, we got to celebrate with some friends of ours the adoption of their son. It was amazing. We got to walk a little bit of the journey with them and be part of it. And man, it was awesome. And my heart was just exploding with joy for them. I can't imagine the joy that they were experiencing. And there's been several times in my life when I've gotten to walk this road with people before. And it's interesting, there's, there's an, actually there's a phenomenon that happens when people adopt babies, is that as the baby, as the child grows up, the child actually begins to look like their adoptive parents. I don't know if you've ever seen this or experienced this yourself with friends of yours or, or you yourself, 
but that the, the child will actually begin to look like their adoptive parents. And so I started doing some research on this, and I, I found this article, and it's, it's really interesting. The, the term is called attunement, that the children begin to attune to their adoptive parents. And this is what it, what it, what it says. It says, referring to the child's brain development, attunement is the act of the parent making appropriate facial expressions in response to certain events. So as a parent makes a facial expression to a certain event, the child will see that and try to mimic it. And as it grows up, as it does that, it begins to mimic almost exactly like the parent does. And another side effect of that is that the actual facial muscles of the child develop in a certain way to start to shape the face of the child to look like the parent. But listen to this. He goes on to say this, I think that one of the reasons why so many of our children look like us is because they have learned glad, sad, and mad from our faces. We have attuned them enough, to, we have attuned them enough times that their glad looks like our glad and their sad looks like our sad. It's incredible. Church, does your glad look like Jesus' glad? Does your sad look like his sad? Do the things that bring him joy bring joy to your heart? Are the things that break his heart, are they breaking your heart as well? Do you imitate and do you look like Jesus? John says, if anyone says that they abide in Christ, that they walk like him, they look like him. Do you look like Jesus? This is another part of the test that we can hold our lives up to. And again, not perfectly. I'm not saying that you have now become Jesus. No, what I'm saying is that you, you look like him. Right, that your life is not in opposition to the life that he lived in the attitude that you have in your heart, the attitude that you bring to the table. So let's quickly look at how Jesus walked. First in John 6, 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus did the will of the Father. We just talked about that. Are you doing the will of the Father? In Matthew 8, 3, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touched a man and he healed him. See, Jesus uh, met people's needs wherever he went. Do you meet people's needs? Do you find yourself in the middle of people's messy situations meeting their needs? If you do, you are looking like Jesus. John 4, 16 and 17, Jesus said to her, go call your husband to come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus told her, you are right in saying this, that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. What Jesus is doing is he's speaking truth into her life. Do you speak the truth? Jesus spoke the truth, but he did not do it to crush somebody. He did it to build life into them. As we continue to see in John 8, 11, she said, no one, Lord, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, Jesus did not condemn her. Neither do I condemn you. Are you finding yourself condemning people a lot? It doesn't look like Jesus. In fact, in John 3, 17, the verse after the most famous verse in the Bible, it says that I did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. He didn't come to condemn. Do we find ourselves doing a lot of condemning? Or do you find grace, amplifying grace? That's what Jesus looks like. How do we do this? Well, another way that Jesus looks like, Philippians 2, 5, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. Do you humble yourself 
every day. Not he humbled himself once, but he humbled himself while he walked here on this earth to show us this is how you not condemn people. This is how you can speak truth and love is by humbling yourself to those around you. Jesus humbled himself. Do you look like Jesus? The third, third part of the test is this. It's the social test. Do you love your brother? 1 John 2 10 and 11 says this, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Have you ever experienced something or walked in something that was really, really good in theory, but like really, really badly lived out in practice? Right, like you're just like, yeah, that turned out a little differently in my head the way I saw it. Right, didn't, didn't think it was gonna go that way. In theory, this is a really good idea, but in reality, terrible idea, right? Like we, we play this, I don't know, I, so many people think like zombie apocalypse. How awesome would that be? Right, like these skills that have never been trained in, I'm going to be awesome at them. And me and my best friend, we're gonna live off the land, we're gonna survive, we're gonna make it in reality. You're like dead in the first hour of the first day. <laughs> you're not gonna survive, let's be real. Right? We, we, we have these ideas, we have these things like this is really good in theory, but this is really terrible lived out in life. And, and I feel that we've done that with the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us. Right? Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, great idea, Jesus. Somebody should do it. Somebody should live this thing out. Because this, really? Like seriously? Like love God, I can do that but then love my neighbor as myself. But the problem is these, these commands, you can't separate them. They go hand in hand. You really can't do one without the other. And we've come to this place where we really are good at hating our brother, but thinking that we're loving God. See, the result of loving him is loving them. The result of loving him is loving them. See, the Gnostics claim to have been enlightened. The Gnostics claim to have known God. They claim to have this deep knowledge of him, yet they did not act like what God commanded whatsoever, and, and they, 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 they disobeyed his commandments, and they hated, they hated the Christians who were not coming to Gnosticism. So they were hating their brother. And it's amazing. What John is saying here is that the proof that you do or do not know God is not only in in your disobedience, but also in your hatred. The proof that you do or do not know God is not just in disobedience, but is also in your hatred. The true Christian who knows God and walks in the light both obeys God and loves his brother. Again, they're not, you can't separate these two these two things. True living faith is lived out in right relationship with God and right relationship with man. That is true faith lived out, that you are in right relationship with God and that you are in right relationship with man. See, I think what we have done in our modern Western church is we've, we've tweaked, we've adjusted this verse a little bit And I'm afraid oftentimes when we read this, it sounds a little bit more like this. Whoever loves his brother, who thinks and agrees politically, economically, and socially with him, abides in the light, because they are both right. And in him there is no cause for stumbling, obviously, because they're both right. 
But whoever hates his brother, unless his brother is a Democrat or Republican, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, NRA, PETA, believes in evolution, believes in intelligent design, pro-open borders, pro-closed borders, part of the 1%, part of the actual 1%, part of the actual, actual 1%, <laughs> believes in socialism, libertarianism, capitalism, or environmentalism, believes that we need to look deep into our social past and sins and work through them, or thinks that we should move forward and build a better tomorrow and not worry about the past, unless our brother thinks that we need to help the poor more or thinks that we help them too much, thinks that the government should do it, that we should do it, the church should do it, or that you should do it, is pro-gun reform or anti-gun reform, is black, white, Asian, Hispanic, pro-United States, anti-United States, or not even American, thinks that the greatest of all time is LeBron or the greatest of all time is MJ. <laughs> that last one is probably the most, you know, diabolically put in there, right? Is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Unless they fall into this category, we should not hate them. If they agree with us, they're on our side of the line, they think politically like us, they think socially like us, they think environmentally like us, whatever it is. If they think like us, then yes, if we hate them, then we're in darkness. But if they're not like us, then it's okay to hate them. That's what we've arrived to today. That's where we find our culture, and unfortunately, that's also where we find so many people in church who say that they know him, yet when you hold that up against what John is teaching us, John says, you're in darkness. If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. There's no twilight, right? You are in the light or you are in darkness. It is one or the other. And again, have we deceived ourselves of knowing Christ and yet not acting like him, not walking as he walked, not obeying his commandments? So what commandments is John talking about? He's talking about love God and love your neighbor, love your brother. That by doing that, you fulfill all of the commandments, But we've heard a lot of people, and sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but we have hated people that just don't think like us. Jesus, I didn't come to condemn, I come to save. If you hate, you're in darkness. But I'm not talking about one who's been angry, who's gotten frustrated, who's said something they shouldn't say, who's done something they shouldn't done, stuck their foot in their mouth. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. But the one who's habitually failing to love others shows that he lives in darkness and is in sin and is not in the light of God's presence. Like, what earmarks your life? What would your coworkers describe you as? Somebody who's just angry and hating everybody? or somebody who is working to the best of their human frailness to love everyone around them. Of course we're all gonna be angry, of course we're all gonna hate people we shouldn't hate, misjudge people, do those things, we do that because we are still broken, but what earmarks your life? What are you habitually known to be doing? You find yourself just on social media, angry all the time, railing on people, hating people, or do you find yourself extending olive branches, trying to walk and talk with people, and I get it, what I'm talking about, this is important stuff. I'm not saying that, like, hey, we shouldn't talk about these social issues, we just need to come together, right? No, it's, I'm saying, yeah, we need to have hard conversations, of course we do, but can we have a hard conversation without hating the person across the table from us? 
That's what I'm talking about. We need to humble ourselves. We need to ask for forgiveness to each other. That is how Jesus walked. Love in practice sees straight. It thinks clearly and it makes us balance in our outlook and judgment and conduct because we are in the light and we can see. We're not in darkness. So if you're feeling maybe convicted right now, if maybe you're thinking, man, I don't know, am I in the light? I thought I was, but maybe. I want to be assured of this. There's some great news. Just, Just go back to the beginning. But John starts this whole chapter out with, look, I'm writing to you so you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. There's great news. Let's not forget that. Let's come to that. Let's allow that to be the very thing that allows us to obey God, to imitate Christ, and to love our brother. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us, God, for our sin. Jesus, forgive us for not obeying you, not even caring to think about our sin and the weight in which was paid for. God, forgive us for not taking sin seriously and thinking like, it's okay, we can just sweep whatever under the rug. But Lord, let us take grace seriously. Let us look into our lives, God, and not dwell on our sin, not be defeated by our sin, but know that there's victory in it, God, but that it would be our desire to not sin. God, forgive us for not obeying you and your commandments. God, forgive us for not walking like Jesus Forgive us for thinking that we can say yes to you but not look like him. That we don't have to obey, that we don't have to meet people's needs, that we don't have to speak the truth in love, that we don't have to humble ourselves, but we want to make it all about ourselves. Forgive me, Jesus, for doing that. Forgive me for making it about me. God, forgive us for not loving our brother for hating, for hating, God, people who have, who are deceived and who are bought into a lie. God, we have been deceived and we've bought into the lie. But Jesus, we've made this about them and not about the enemy. Forgive us for that, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us daily, God, that you, the Holy Spirit, that you would fill us and give us the strength that we need to obey you. Give us the strength that we need to walk like Jesus and give us the strength that we need to love our brother. And that that would be the earmark of our lives. And as we do this together, Jesus, that we would be people that would have an impact on this world. That we'd be people that have an impact in our community. And that people would come to know you. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.